Hello. That was so fast. That was <laughs> <Hello>. so. Uh, <laughs> no, it was just like recording in progress. Hello. And I, good, good luck with it. Good luck with editing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to bother. I am Scotty Milder. This is the Weirdest Thing Podcast. Who are you? Uh, my name is Amelia Ampuero. Yeah, that's here who I am. <laughs> here we, here, we are. Here like we are. 80 some episodes in and we continually bungle the intro. Yeah, yeah. We, we just have <laughs> never quite figured it out. Well, no. I was going to say we'll get it. And then I was like. We probably won't. Historically, <laughs> we probably won't get it. But yeah. That's how it is. Before we get uh, going, I feel like we have to just very briefly, because there's only one episode left, we have to very briefly talk about Yellow Jackets. My God. Yellow Jackets is blowing my mind. Donia is about to start drinking some water. So if you hear her lapping up uh, in the comments, disregard. Um, (laughs) Hold on. She's, hold on. Pause. Welcome to our show. Welcome to our show. It's a good show. Okay, Miss Press was making a big show about struggling to drink from like the half empty bowl. So I had to go like fill it for her. (laughs) Yellow Jackets. Yellow Jackets is getting insane. Mm -hmm. And like everybody's been talking about if again, if you aren't caught, if you aren't watching Yellow Jackets, if you don't care about Yellow Jackets, I can't help you. But everybody had been like, oh, what's well, like, what is it? And what is it going to be? And they're clearly hiding the secret. And what is the secret going to be? And I'm not going to give any spoilers. However, like you and I briefly talked about the way that things have panned out in the last, I guess, like two episodes really is like so much worse than I could have yeah. imagined. And it is actually not even a concept that I had truly, like truly, truly no. thought of. Yeah. Because like, so for anyone who is, I'm going to sort of talk a little circumspect about it but <clears throat> anyone who is list or watching yellow jackets you will know if you've followed any of the online discussion that there's one character in particular that people were like what happened to this character why isn't this character in the adult world blah, blah. is this character actually this character blah 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 blah, blah. Mm-hmm. well we found out yeah what happened to that character yeah and it's fucking awful mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like yeah. it was like it's bad oh it's really bad like all of the absolute craziest and worst theories that people could have come up with don't even touch what actually happened. Yeah. So, I don't want to oversell it in case anybody is like watching it and then is like, it wasn't that bad. Well, good for you. I mean, now we know now we know where on the on the ethical scale you reside. I was say, like, but, like, it wasn't that bad. I'm gonna be like, you're a sociopath. Yeah, you're like, you're, 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 a, you're actually like you're an actual monster. Yeah, yeah, it's getting and I feel like I can't remember what episode just came out. Was it episode eight or nine? Eight. OK, because what they keep saying is what happens in the 10th episode is going to make us hate everybody. Huh. Interesting. So maybe there are two more because I also have been seeing this one referred to as the penultimate episode, which usually means the second to last. I don't so, think people know what they're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe, maybe there's two more, but I thought there was only one more. I guess we'll find out this week. I'm pretty sure it's been like Melanie Linsky and Juliet. L- like it's been people from the show who have been like, what we do in the 10th episode will make you hate us. 
Okay. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they said second to last episode and now I'm confused, but that still doesn't make any sense. If, ne- yeah. if yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I feel like what happened in this past episode kind of made me hate everybody. So like what yeah. next can come, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to see, I'm trying to look up how many episodes, if there's anything about how many episodes are going to be. It just says season two, episode nine, but it doesn't say. Okay. Well, I think we'll find out. It'll probably be pretty obvious. Oh, no. This says Men's Health, who is writing articles about (laughs) Yellow Jackets, says season two of Yellow Jackets will be nine episodes total. Okay. I will also just say that uh, this just made me think about this because I was scrolling scrolling through Instagram and Carmen Maria Machado, who wrote uh, In the Dream House, which is an excellent Mm -hmm. memoir about being in an abusive relationship. She just wrote an article for, I believe, Bon Appetit magazine about Hollywood's obsession with cannibalism. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I was like, I have to go read that. I have to go read yeah. that. Also, before we get started, news of this just broke. So I just want to take a moment to say, uh, rest in peace, Tina Turner. What? Yeah. I, didn't, I hadn't even heard that. When did that break? I mean, I think they posted it on her like socials, like maybe two hours ago. Oh, and wow. word is like, just like, if you open up Instagram, it's going to be full of. Oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, I think I found out maybe 15 minutes before we hopped on this. I mean, how old? I mean, she was in her 80s. She was 83. Just, okay. she just, you know, it's. Yeah. yeah, it was an icon. Yeah, she was a, she was an icon. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And went through, went through a lot of shit and was just a brilliant musician and performer. And mm-hmm. yeah, so RIP yeah. to R. an R. absolute R. real one. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Okay. So I think um, based on the last time we did a researched episode, I think I went first. So I think you go first this time. Yeah, that's what that's what I have as well. Let me do this and get this ready. Okay, hold on. Let me. Oh, yes. My computer. I'm on my older laptop to do this since it's the one that has the jack for the microphone. Mm. And sometimes this computer is like... <laughs> And just like, is like, I don't, I don't get it. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to start with a little bit of a cold open, you know, like I do. So our story starts on January 21st, 1938, when Betty Jane Alsup was born in Rock Island, Illinois. She would grow up to be described as a one woman slum and Mm. would have one of the most extraordinary acts in the history of burlesque. Today, I'm going to tell you about the life and times of Honeysuckle Divine. All right. Sources for this are short and sweet. They are Wikipedia, The Rialto Report, which is a series of podcasts and articles dedicated to expanding the historical record of the adult entertainment industry between the early 1960s and the mid 1980s. Very cool website to just like dig around on. And the way that I first found out about the story is one of my favorite accounts on the dumpster fire that is Twitter. It's, <laughs> it's an account called Whores of Yore. Mm. Really fantastic, fantastic. Like sex positive, about the history of sex and sex work and all that stuff. Really, really great, great Mm -hmm. account. Uh, I do want to throw out a content warning. Um, This is at the end of the day, a story about a sex worker who had a unique act. There is a lot of anatomy in this story. (laughs) If that is not your jam, or if you are listening with kiddos, 
knows? Maybe skip forward to Scotty's story or come back next time. Okay, so let's hop right in. I'm going to refer to her as Honeysuckle from here on out. Okay. But she she came from a family of 14 children. Damn. She said that her father kept her mother knocked up and barefooted. She was number 10 of 14. Uh, and she described her father as a hillbilly banjo playing lumberjack. Mm. She grew up poor in Illinois. Rock Island was a small city on the Mississippi River, and her extended family was spread throughout Illinois, Ohio, and Iowa. And they it seemed like they were all in the lumber business. They worked in sawmills. They were lumberjacks, mm-hmm. et cetera. Her family was very old-fashioned, and Honeysuckle actually grew up closer to her immediate siblings than her parents. For the first several years of her life, like she had a really normal childhood. She was actually like really, she did really well in school. She was a straight A student and yeah, that's like who she was. And though her family was not particularly religious, Honeysuckle actually lived a very devout life. She prayed for people constantly. She was always helping the elderly and the poor, despite being poor herself. She didn't drink. She didn't curse. She didn't smoke. But she was also like a teenage girl and she dated mm-hmm. boys and she had her heart broken. And starting at this point and then for the rest of her life, she felt this pull between these religious feelings and her her sexuality. It was around this time that she met her aunt Flo. That is not a euphemism for menstruation. She actually (laughs) had an aunt Flo. And this quote is from an interview in Mink magazine. Uh, Anything that I quote here was quotes that were in the Rialto report article Mm -hmm. about her. But this is an from an interview in Mink Magazine. And she said, quote, Aunt Flo was a real free spirit, but all my relatives thought she was nuts. They'd laugh at her antics, but no one wanted their kids to associate with her. She was considered the black sheep of the family. She was a real wild lady. I hung around her a lot and she liked me. I loved to watch what she did. My mother was terrified I'd turn out like her. (laughs) Since no one was like really looking out for her, Honeysuckle ended up getting pregnant when she was a teen and she, she had an abortion. In the summer of 1959, at the age of 21, she left Rock Island for Philadelphia. She was like, I need a clean slate. Like, I need to move to a new place and I need to kind of like start over fresh. Uh, So she actually became a postulant at the Gray Nuns of the Sacred Heart Convent. A postulant, for anybody who doesn't know, is basically a baby nun. You're a postulant, then a novice, then a full-blown nun. Right. Honeysuckle was only there for about three months. And (laughs) at that point, she was like, this is this isn't for me. She described an inner compulsion to run away. And she actually said that the devil appeared to her one night and told her that he would kill her if she stayed in the convent. So, yeah. So she was like, "Okay, I guess I've I guess I got to get out of here. I mean, if the devil tells you. Yeah. Don't fuck around with that. Yeah. So she like escaped from a window one night, but she knew that the nuns at the convent were going to worry about her. But she also knew that if she called them to be like, hey, I'm okay. I've just left that the mother superior would talk her into coming back. So she called the missing persons bureau and she was like, hi, uh, (laughs) my name is Betty Jane Alsep. I was a postulant at the, what was it? The gray nuns of the sacred heart convent. They're going to call you telling you that I'm missing. Can you please just let them know that I'm not missing that I left and that I'm okay. Mm. A police matron at the station gave her civilian clothes and a ride to the airport so that she could go back to Rock Island. Um, Once back in Rock Island, Honeysuckle, she tried to go to nursing school. She tried to become a nurse's aide in the hospital. 
Uh, she tried waiting tables, but like she couldn't, she couldn't make anything stick. She couldn't make anything work. Mm-hmm. She moved to Des Moines, Iowa, and she took a job at the Bishop's Cafeteria as a cocktail waitress. This would be her first time working around alcohol. Mm-hmm. The other servers at this place would go-go dance behind the bar. So Honeysuckle learned to dance from them, even though she said that she was never very good at it. So she's in Des Moines. She eventually moves back back to Rock Island in 1962, and she ends up taking a burlesque job. The evolution from burlesque to stripping mm-hmm. is really fascinating and kind of kind of a, a an episode in and of itself. Sure. But we're going to, I'm going to talk about this and we're going to start out. She's, she's doing quote unquote burlesque and then she moves into many other things. Mm-hmm. But so she was arrested in 1963 for obscene walking. That was actually the charge. Wow. The newspaper article said she was accused of too much wiggle and too little skirt. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's actually, title right yeah. There. And there's like a newspaper clipping of her in her, she was wearing a skirt that was five inches above her knees. Honeysuckle claimed that her walk and her wiggle were no more or less than any other girl at that time, but she had recently turned down an offer from the local police chief to work in his brothel. Oh, well, there you go. Uh Uh-huh. So this is again, work in my brothel. We better like, you know, arrest you for obscene walking turpitude of your walk. This is, again, another quote from her. She says, I said, no, I was fucking morning, noon and night, but on my own time, I'm an independent thinker. (laughs) She clearly, of course, suspected that the arrest was punishment for turning the police chief down. This would be the first in a long line of troubles that Honeysuckle would find herself in with the law. Yeah. The case was eventually thrown out of court and Honeysuckle decided to, you know, like blow that popsicle stand. She ended up moving to Washington, D.C. with her boyfriend, a dress, a douche, and a diary. Again, those are, (laughs) that's a direct quote. Perhaps Um, alternate title. Yeah, (laughs) she would go on. So she like started writing a diary when she moved to D.C. and she would keep like detailed diaries throughout this like incredible career that she had. So she was working as a waitress, but she quickly turned to stripping because dancers made so much more money than cocktail waitresses did. And she lived like a double life for the next 25 years. She would strip and do a whole bunch of stuff in the DC Baltimore area. And then she would go home to Rock Island. It is unclear whether or not her family like knew what was going on uh-huh. and just chose not to talk about it or if they didn't know about it at all. Right. I think in one somewhere she She's quoted as being like, my family thought I was a writer. Mm, okay. So she originally danced under the name Pussy Bird, and the clubs <laughs> she worked in were frequently patronized by politicians. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, dancing wasn't the only thing on the menu at these places. She says, my first striptease job in D.C. was at the old Tangerine Club on 144th Street. I had a real sentimental attachment to the place as I used to turn tricks with important politicians I met in there. I never got arrested there. Honeysuckle eventually started wording, working on the block. It was 
a stretch of the 400th block of East Baltimore Street in Baltimore. The block was home to strip clubs, burlesque houses, sex shops, and other adult entertainment venues. It was famous in the first half of the 20th century for its burlesque houses, which saw such performers as, um, I don't know if this will mean anything to you, but if you know burlesque, it will, such performers as Lily St. Cyr and Tempest Storm. They're big, big, big names in the history of burlesque. And again, each of their individual stories is an episode in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But after like the middle of the century in the 1950s, the clubs got seedier as strip joints started to replace burlesque houses. She said, I worked on the block a lot. I loved it. We were hustling bottles of champagne and giving guys blowjobs back in the dark corners. Most of the guys came in there expecting a blowjob. That was the only thing on their mind, which is also just like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to talk about in this story that is just, it's a, it's a, like a fascinating snapshot of sexuality mm-hmm. in like, time. yeah, at a very particular time. Like to think that you would go to a burlesque house or a strip joint and be like, Ooh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to see if I can get one of the girls to do something. And the only thing you ask for is a blowjob, yeah. <laughs> you know, and not the depraved shit that people are doing now. Well, it's um, like, you know, back then, like a blowjob would have been considered like, I, yeah, like exactly. You wouldn't ask your wife to do that, you know, that yeah. taboo, you know? Yeah. Whereas now it's just like kind of considered to be part of the like general menu of things. And I think also something, especially now that, you know, the binary of sexuality has, has sort of opened up and broadened, right. you know? Oral is like it, it's is. it's it falls on the scale of like anywhere from like oh yeah that's what we mean when we say that we have sex with somebody to like yeah we hooked up right I mean it's you know? pretty standard it's pretty vanilla now yeah but back then it would have been like oh my yeah God. like you said kind of depraved yeah so honeysuckle frequented the two o'clock club which also happened to be a favorite watering hole for the likes of Spiru Agnew <laughs> <laughs> and I others mean, of course. Of course. Uh, According to her diaries, Honeysuckle's clients included a senator, a governor, two UN ambassadors, two union leaders, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and allegedly President Lyndon B. Johnson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me. I'm a big LBJ fan, but like, (laughs) seems like type thing he'd be given. I mean, he's also a little bit of a sociopath. (laughs) Well, they all are. She claimed that they spent the night together at the Statler Hilton. And he took her home in a taxi afterwards. She said that it might have evolved into something more. I think she meant something more regular Uh if it wasn't for that dang Vietnam War. Obviously, there's no way to verify any of her claims, but around this time, there was also a full review of presidential security that got ordered because LBJ's security team had no explanation for a period of eight hours one night when LBJ went missing. (laughs) He just wandered off. Yeah, he wandered off. Honeysuckle would frequently point to this report as like proof that their tryst had happened, and she talked about it a lot. I mean- I mean, wouldn't you? Yeah, I get. I guess she also claimed that Peter Jennings was a trick of hers back in D.C. Interesting, and that she fell in love with him. Yeah. Mm. She says, quote, they say that love is the death of a whore, and it's the truth. Since I met Peter, I haven't wanted to be with anyone else. She wrote about and to him constantly for the next 15 years. Wow. 
Yeah. yeah he was quite the dapper gentleman. He was. He was. And when he came back and he was doing a morning show, he had a young aide. They they talked to her, I think, in the Rialto Report article. Uh-huh. And she was, you know, she was like his assistant. She was in charge of opening his mail. She was seeing letter after letter after letter after letter from somebody named Honeysuckle. And it was like, you know, she was like, I'm, I'm going crazy without you. Like, I need you. I love you so much. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when are you going to come back to me? And the woman went to Peter Jennings and was like, I, we need to like contact. She's clearly not well because she's saying that she like knows you. And Peter Jennings was like, you don't need to worry about it. And the woman was like, no, she's sending like a lot of letters, like a <laughs> like lot. We a need lot. to, yeah. Like we need to check on her. I'm worried that she's going to do something to herself. And Peter Jennings was like, she's not going to do anything to herself. And the woman like kept pressing it. And finally, Peter Jennings was like, okay, fine. And took his assistant to go meet Honeysuckle. And this is actually in Peter Jennings, like a biography of Peter Jennings. Oh, wow. So yes. So this this isn't even fairly confirmed. Yes, this is fairly confirmed. And, you know, the woman met Honeysuckle and they had a nice little conversation and Peter, like they left and Peter Jennings was like, I told you, like, you don't need to worry about her. She's okay. Was he like responding to her as she was writing these letters or was he kind of ignoring her? That I have no idea. Just not telling his assistant. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, I guess as a newsman, it wouldn't be out of the realm that you knew about a performer of this nature, it would probably be a different story to be like, I know her because I am a client of hers. You know what I mean? Right. By the late 1960s, Honeysuckle started performing in New York City clubs in addition to her Baltimore, D.C. gigs. At the time, her act was not particularly special. Like she said herself, she couldn't dance. Uh She didn't like have a good gimmick. But one night she was working in a bar on the block and a trick walked in and she walked up to him and said, hi, my name is Honeysuckle Divine. What's yours? And Honeysuckle Divine was born. Mm. I think it said that the, I think she said that the trick was like, well, I can't do better than that. And she was like, (laughs) yep. Um, (laughs) So yeah, Honeysuckle Divine was born and she changed her look. She sort of was like always incognito. She would wear this like long, blonde, shaggy wig. It was very like kind of Sharon Tate that she would use for years. And like, as time went on, people were like, that wig was disgusting. (laughs) Like it was like ratted and matted and it was a mess. Around 1970, Honeysuckle stumbled upon a description of famous flatuist Lepetomane, a French entertainer famous for the remarkable control of his abdominal muscles that allowed him to seemingly fart at will. And Honeysuckle knew how she could spice up her act. (laughs) Okay. Here's if, if, if you've been blushing during this episode, here's where (laughs) things are going to get real rough for you. So Honeysuckle went home and was like, let me see if I can do this. And she could, in fact. So she created (laughs) an act that included blowing out candles by forcing air out of her vagina. She would shoot ping pong balls. She would shoot lotion. She soon evolved or devolved, depending on how you feel about these things, into sticking a mop handle into her vagina. And she would like clean the stage after her act. (laughs) Yes. That's like Mm -hmm. some real Kegel exercises. Yeah. She would insert pickles, Mm. take them out, put them in baggies and sell them to audience members. She would spread peanut butter on her bits, wipe it with a piece of bread and sell that to audience members. Yeah. 
Um, again, this is a direct quote. She says, quote, I made my puss sound like a duck. I'd say I fucked a duck and the duck's uh-huh. still in there. I lit a candle with a match, then extinguished the flame with my puss. Then I'd blow out <laughs> of the flame from three candles all at once. After that, I'd put three candles in my puss, light them and stood on my head. I'd count down and blast off. The candle shot out like a rocket. I call that <laughs> pussy propulsion. That's the title of the episode. There, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I smoked a cigarette in my puss and blew smoke rings in time with Glenn Miller's swing music. I put talcum powder in my pussy, which I blow out in a big white cloud. And then I'd shoot ping pong balls out. The powder gives me better grip on the ball so I can shoot them 15 to 20 feet. I prepare each ball carefully. I write honeysuckle loves your balls on them. And then I wrap them in a baggie to keep them dry. So whoever catches them can keep them as a souvenir i mean i feel like the ping pong ball thing is definitely that's become a thing like yes and it's become a thing if the internet is to be believed it has become a thing in specific countries where sex uh-huh. tourism is right. uh very big sure. what's nuts about this is that in the whores of your twitter threat the amount of men who came in in, the, in there and they were like i still have my signed honeysuckle balls <laughs> Wow. Yeah. And she would draw like a little scrotum on them. (laughs) Amazing. So her new act clearly was like a huge hit and it put her in very big demand. And she went on to headline at clubs all over the country. Lines to get into her show would frequently wrap her on the block. And like the fact that she was a former nun, like added to the intrigue of it all. Eventually, Bruce David, who was editor at Screw Magazine. Okay. Do you know anything about Screw Magazine? Oh, yeah. Okay. I so, said that a little too enthusiastically, but we'll just, we'll just let that go. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Calm down. So Screw Magazine honestly kind of sounds like if National Lampoon and Playboy had a baby. Right. Or like if National Lampoon and like Hustler had a baby. It, yeah, was, was, it was dirtier than Hustler. It was dirtier, dirtier. Yeah, like Playboy was very like gauzy, like soft focused, very alluring photos of women. It also was like, oh, we've got nude photos of like Jane Mansfield and Marilyn Monroe. Screw was like hardcore pornographic and then also had like weird sort of like political and societal like rants. I've seen it compared to like Mad Magazine, but for sex. Is Mad Magazine not National Lampoon? No, they're, they're super different. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, they're both humor magazines, but Mad Magazine is, you know, Alfred E. Newman cartoon for kids. No, I know, but don't they at least share an origin? I don't know. Actually, I, that's a good question. That's something I would, I would almost want to look into. I don't know if, because I know National Lampoon all came out of like all the dudes who like worked at the Harvard Crimson or whatever. Yeah. Hold on. I'm going to look it up. Play, play the music. No, I was incorrect. It says Mad became uh, began as a comic book published by EC, debuting in August of 1952. Hmm. The Mad office was initially located in Lower Manhattan. 
uh, well, in the early 1960s, I really thought that it was like National Lampoon kind of like split. No, and some that, people kept up with National Lampoon and other people went with Mad. That's interesting. I didn't realize Mad Magazine was EC Comics because that, that they're the ones who did like um, Tales from the Crypt and stuff. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's Screw Magazine. Yeah. And eventually Bruce Davis, who is the editor at Screw Magazine, heard about Honeysuckle's act. After an introduction and a private performance, David learned about Honeysuckle's diaries and asked if she'd be interested in publishing them in Screw Magazine. He then went on to arrange a meeting with uh, Honeysuckle and owner Al Goldstein Mm -hmm. and invited Honeysuckle to the Screw offices. I know Al Goldstein is like a pretty well-known name in that whole world. Mm-hmm. Of their first meeting, Goldstein says, quote, I first saw Honeysuckle as I walked into Jim, Buck- Jim Buckley's office, and there was this girl standing on her head shooting Jurgen's lotion across the room. <laughs> I thought <laughs> I thought that was unbelievably disgusting. So naturally, we made her our symbol, like the Playboy rabbit. <laughs> she is, without a doubt, the most unhygienic mass of femininity I've ever encountered. She's a one-woman slum. But you know something? She's a sweet nice almost innocent kind of creature and she's the only person on the staff who calls me mr goldstein Hmm. that was that is not an uncommon sentiment from anybody who knew her everybody was was, nice person yeah and that there was like this almost like childlike quality to her Hmm. that she she was sweet and kind her voice is not dissimilar to that of like dolly parton's Hmm, interesting. You know, it's this kind of like high, like almost squeaky, like, like not squeaky, but it's just it's like it's a little bit of like a little girl voice. Hmm. Yeah. So Honeysuckle's Diary of a Dirty Broad was included in the magazine for the next several years and it was wildly popular. Hmm. This is from uh, an article from a 1974 issue of Penthouse UK says, quote, great diaries are rare and appear perhaps only once a century. The 17th century had peeps, the 18th had creevy, the 19th had none at all. We in the 20th century are unusually fortunate in having Miss Honeysuckle Divine. Her devastating diary of a dirty broad must surely rank as one of the most important social documents of all time. Wow. Goldstein captured Honeysuckle's act for the film SOS Screw on the Screen, uh, which was released <laughs> in 1975. The film is absolutely terrible. Goldstein himself is like, it is, you should only view it to see like what not to do with an adult film. Like it's, <laughs> it's terrible. Well, one thing, cause I've, I've read various interviews with Al Goldstein over the uh-huh. years. He, he just like pops up a lot in like seventies culture and stuff. Yeah. And one thing I always kind of like about him is like, he seems pretty self-aware about who he is and what he was doing. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the film is awful, but it is one of the few filmed records of Honeysuckle's act. Hmm. Her act was so profitable that Honeysuckle actually no, no, no longer needed to engage in other kinds of sex work. Hmm. She claimed in Penthouse Magazine that if a good offer came her way, she'd do it, but she didn't solicit anymore. Mm-hmm. She said she actually had to be half drunk to turn tricks hmm. by that point. Yeah, she talked about it and she was like, I'm just like, I just don't have it in me. Yeah. Well, I mean, at that point, she's like kind of getting into her 40s, late 30s, early 40s, something like that. I'm trying to do the math. <laughs> yeah. 38. She'd be 48. She was 10, 58. She was 20, 68. She used 30. So she's in her 30s. Mm-hmm. She like another interesting thing about her is that like 
she loved her fans. She mm. loved them. She would stay after like hours after her show was done to like sign autographs and talk to her fans and do all that stuff. When she heard that a fan couldn't afford to see her show because the club had increased the cover price by $2, she went out and had a clause put into her contract that club owners couldn't charge more than $1 over the cover price for her shows. Mm. This is another quote from her. She said, quote, I belong to the people too. Mm. So even through all of her success, her work was causing her some emotional turmoil because she was still like, she still had these sort of warring factions of like the spirituality and this like mm -hmm. devoutness that she had to God and this like very lucrative act that she was doing and that she also felt like called to do. Right. She was torn about whether or not she was serving the Lord with her act. And she eventually went out and like sought the help of a psychiatrist in New York City. In December of 1974, she was arrested yet again, this time in Philadelphia for open lewdness and criminal conspiracy. Ooh. Honeysuckle, like... She got arrested a lot. There is no mm -hmm. way that you could do that act and not get arrested. Yeah. But this time was different because the charges were more serious. The public attention was more intense and because other cities soon started to follow suit. So she had shows in Syracuse, Boston, and Albany that were busted up. She was eventually found guilty in her Philadelphia trial and she was pissed. Mm -hmm. She saw her act as a comedy act and not a sex show. She was very angry over being accused of publicly masturbating and mm -hmm. claimed that the men who arrested, charged, and tried her had no knowledge of female anatomy. Yeah. She said, quote, a woman judge would know our anatomy much better. Men seem to have weird ideas about how women masturbate. And like <laughs> honeysuckle, it has not changed. Like the same <laughs> continues to be true. Right. I mean, I would guess that like typically ping pong balls are not part of the, the repertoire for Scotty. <laughs> the amount of people, the amount of men who think that like tampons feel good <laughs> and they're just like, no, it like weirds me out that you, I mean, this has not happened to me, thank God. But like the amount of men out there who like get weird about their girlfriends and wives using, using tampons. Because they think it's like a dildo. Yes. And I'm just like, I understand that your bits, like you can't like think about your bits without it, without you getting turned on. The same is not <laughs> true for women and their bits. Like mm. we're not like constantly thinking about them. We're not like, oh, a breeze went by and that was like so titillating. Mm. Like we need better sex education in schools. Okay. <laughs> So her case was appealed and she actually, she, by this, like, the, like these court cases and stuff were draining her, her, her money and yeah. her savings. And she actually asked, she requested that she be able to represent herself. The court was like, no, like, no, you can't. Mm. And they gave her a court appointed lawyer, but her court appointed lawyer ended up being a lawyer for the ACLU. Mm. So her case was appealed, but that still also proved expensive. Right. And almost all of Honeysuckle's savings were eaten up by this and her other legal battles. Mm -hmm. She actually had to go on a hiatus from the Honeysuckle Divine Act for a while. And in that time, she returned to D.C. to strip incognito under a different name. Mm. She didn't wear her wig, so she had her real waist-length brown hair, and nobody recognized her. The trouble was, if you remember, her non- <laughs> propulsion act was not very good 
So she'd be like, she'd be dancing and the customers would be like, do you know any honeysuckle tech? techniques and she was like for fuck's sake you know she couldn't <laughs> yeah. she couldn't catch a break so right. with the money not coming in from this work honeysuckle had to return to sex work that involved mm. intercourse i also just want to say here i am all for progressive language and examining antiquated language and terms is always a good thing but we've we've got to figure out what's happening with sex work <laughs> yeah because sex work is used to mean everything from burlesque performers to strippers to people who have sex for money to cam and web girls like and I mean, so I've, and I've something seen, like i've seen people refer to like instagram models as sex workers and it's like okay like it, you get to this point where it's like it can't mean everything because then it just means nothing like, and also when you're talking stuff. about somebody like moving between different disciplines, right. like we have to have some language for it. So yeah, sex work that involved intercourse was the best I could do. Mm -hmm. Of course, in the articles, because the Rialto report, like I said, was written in 2000. I think I said this, it was written in 2014. So it's still like prostitution, turning tricks, mm -hmm. hooking, whorehouses, like, yeah. <laughs> All that stuff. So if you dip into the article, understand that it was written a mere 10 years ago and in a completely different world in terms of these topics. So yeah, so she goes back to doing that. But she's just, I mean, like, she's just in it. She was just such a fascinating creature because she's like not making any money because she keeps getting busted for indecency and lewdness and right. all and criminal conspiracy and all of that kind of stuff. She's also dealing with like shitty customers and shitty club owners, the conditions in the clubs aren't safe like they talked she and i think a couple of other performers from around that time period talk about how there was i think one club i think on the block in baltimore where the men's restroom was right where the performers would exit off stage mm -hmm. so like the performers are coming off in various states of undress and the line to the restroom is right there and it was like a gauntlet of harassment, if not mm. worse. Well, and back you know? then, like all of those places were like owned by the mob or run by the mob or somehow like tied to organized crime. And so, like, yeah, it, it did not create safe conditions for the people who are actually. Yeah. And like, like if, if some club owner is not going to pay you what you're owed, what are you going to do? Go like go to the police and demand something like, no, they're going to break your legs. Like, yeah. Well, they would just get fired. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it talked about it that anybody who complained was just like, then leave and don't come yeah. back. You know what I mean? And like, she would like pick at the clubs that didn't pay her. You know what I mean? <laughs> she would like stand outside and I think she had a sign that said, my pussy needs to eat too. <laughs> she was also like really into the decriminalization of sex work. Mm -hmm. She was very like pro-union, whole bunch of stuff. She got, I think somewhere in the mid to late seventies, she hooked up with, and I'm not remembering her name right now, but she was a woman, I think based out of San Francisco, and she started the foundation Coyote. And it stands for like, call off your old it's it, but it was basically being like, hey, we need to legitimize sex work. Like it's a profession. Right. We need to like be able to unionize and all this stuff. And there was this big like feminist convention that Honeysuckle got invited to. And she was there and she, you know, she's doing she's She's schmoozing. She's like doing the whole thing, learning about all this stuff. But she's also like handing out her cards to men. Yeah. <laughs> and the, some of the feminists got really like really, really mm -hmm. pissed. And she got like sort of upbraided in public mm. about it. And whoever this woman was, it was said, if she can't do that here, where else can she do it? Well, and I mean, back then there was a big like part of and obviously this isn't the entire thing. But, like a big part of feminism at that time was there was a lot of anti-pornography, anti-sexual 
sex work sentiment so those weren't like it wouldn't have necessarily been natural allies to go to like feminists for help yeah but you think if you're if you're at a thing that has been set up by a woman who's looking to decriminalize sex work you would hope that like that the sentiments there would be a a bit more progressive yeah throughout all of this though again with the legal troubles and all of that stuff like she was not doing well money wise Mm -hmm. she spent a lot of nights on the street because she didn't have money to pay rent the next several years saw honeysuckle in repeated legal troubles um she would also do gigs all over the country she also performed abroad um in places like amsterdam stuff like that she would also like collaborate with a lot of other famous adult performers, including Kelly Everts, who was known as the preacher who dances to save men's souls. She was like an evangelical stripper. That's, I feel like I've heard of her. Yeah, she's also a very interesting character because it wasn't Mm. a gimmick. Like she was truly like, this is how we save, like, this is how we save the world. This is how we save people's souls. Yeah. Yeah. By the mid 1980s, she was still performing at almost 50 years old. And the years of financial hardship were like starting to wear on her. She she looked older than her 50 years. Mm -hmm. And once we hit the late 80s, what you started to see was adult movie performers taking over stripping stages. Uh, it became like a very profitable side gig for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was pushing out the sort of old school, right. you know, performers who had come up in that arena and had made a name for themselves that way. And now it was like, oh, well, if you're in a movie, now you can come. Which I know there was a strip club in Lubbock that was constantly touting porn Mm-hmm. performers who were coming to strip. I mean, I feel like I see that clubs on billboards here. around here. Yeah. 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 yeah, the clubs here do it. You're not seeing it on billboards, but you're seeing it on like the strip club signs. Scotty, maybe, so. maybe that's what I'm going <laughs> <laughs> okay. to like screenshot that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so because of this, there wasn't really any room for Honeysuckle's act in the world of adult entertainment. This is from The Secrets of Honeysuckle by Deanna Stillman for Genesis Magazine. It said, quote, vaginal comedians don't get booked into Las Vegas. So Honeysuckle's income is barely enough to keep her supplied with lotions and powder and her inner city bus fare. What Honeysuckle manages to save, she lavishes on friends. Mm. The club owners and editors who had championed her had either retired or passed away. So there was also no one left to give her a platform. Mm-hmm. And she sort of faded into obscurity for several years. She popped yeah. up in Cedar Rapids in 1991 for her brother's funeral, but she sort of like disappeared into the mist after that. There were a lot of rumors that circulated about her. They said that she'd like returned to the convent, that her mental health issues had gotten worse and that she was sort of lost in the bowels of institutionalized mental health care. A lot of people just straight up thought that she died. Like there were a lot of rumors that she was actually buried in a pauper's grave in Washington, D.C. The writers from the Rialto Report, who I believe are two women, actually tracked Honeysuckle down in 2014. Mm. They found her in, she'd been living in a small town in Illinois for the last decade. She's active in her church community. She relies heavily on help from the Salvation Army Mm. and she spends her days quietly. As far as I could tell, there has been no word of Honeysuckle for better or for worse since the 2014 Rialto Report article. Mm. As is, information about her is quite scarce as is evidenced by the lack of sources for this story. Mm. And if she is alive today, she would be in her mid-80s. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, 38. Uh, um, yeah. Older than my dad. Yeah. The Rialto Report article ends with this quote from Honeysuckle herself. And I think it's probably like the best way to sum up her and her work and her legacy. She said, it was so beautiful to see all those people in the audience. I somehow never got over that awestruck feeling when I when I look at them and think how fantastic it is that all those people came to see me. I just pray I make them happy and I do the best I can and try not to worry about not being good enough. I just do my best and pray for the rest. And that is the incredible story of the life of Honeysuckle Divine. That's great. I mean, it's not great because it's kind of sad. Although it sounds like towards the end, maybe she was doing all right, you know? Yeah. The, yeah didn't um, have much, but maybe had kind of found some peace. But like one yeah. thing I love about stories like that is uh, here's this woman who's shooting ping pongs and lotion out of her lady bits and yet she's seeing herself as a comedian like it just shows that like you can find art anywhere you know yeah it doesn't need to be in like some fucking gallery or like on broadway or yeah like well and it's funny because the appeal that she had for that trial in philadelphia was actually overseen by a female judge and the mm-hmm. female judge was like get the fuck out of here like mm-hmm. no this isn't and re- like did what what honeysuckle thought that a female judge would do was to just be like, you're dumb. If you think that this is like a sex act, this isn't, it's weird. (laughs) And it may be lewd, but it is not a, like, it's like, it's weird. And it might be like a little gross and stuff, but it's not lewd. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, again, go back to the performance. performance. Yeah. It's a performance. And it's very interesting. Like, I wish there was more stuff out there about her. I think if I also saw in the Twitter thread, a lot of people who were like, I still have a lot of issues of screw that Mm -hmm. diary of like her diary of a dirty broad articles are in, Mm -hmm. but she existed in this weird space between the analog and digital age. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like she was probably pretty world famous within the circle of people who knew about such stuff during mm-hmm. her time period. But she like she fell to the wayside once stuff started to become like the internet and stuff started to happen. It's, she kind of got, she was forgotten about. It's interesting that she didn't get like, you know, because there are a lot of performers from like that time period that, you know, you know I think of like Betty Page, you know, mm-hmm. Betty Page was big fetish model, pinup model from like the fifties and sixties, mm-hmm. I think kind of disappeared for a long time. And then, you know, the nineties come along and there was this whole, like, you know, the in, between the internet and movies and kind of hipster culture and punk rock culture. Like mm-hmm. she was kind of rediscovered, you know. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that really happened with honeysuckle. No, and I I have to think it so much of it had to do with what the content of her act was. Mm-hmm. There's you know a little what bit I mean? more safety with like a Betty Page. Maybe. Yeah, even though Betty Page was doing some, you know, had like was heavily leaning towards like BDSM mm-hmm. like tones. Uh, right. There is something very different between seeing a picture of another girl like cheekily spanking another woman and somebody shooting, shooting lotion out of their vagina. Right. And it is. It's like I, I was I was wondering how you were going to do with this story with the story, because even as I was like reading it, I was like, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, and, I mean, you know how like I'm not a fan of bodily fluids. Yes. Um, and I um I actually the reason why I know what her voice sounds like is because I watched I watched her act mm-hmm. and I was like, that's a lot. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I've never seen it, obviously. Yeah, but like, I was like, this is weirdly, I think because it's it's in the context of this kind of comedy thing, like mm-hmm. it doesn't gross me out, I think, because I'm more amused by the absurdity of it. 
but maybe if I watched it, because it's the type of thing that would gross me. Like, yeah, because the thing is, too, is that it's not <laughs> like, I mean, like, you, you see all of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. It's not like, oh, you see her like from behind and you see it happening or you see it from far away. Like the camera gets right up in there. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we the are talking. would <laughs> probably not be my favorite. The ping pong balls, I think I'd laugh at. The lotion, I might. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's all it's all pretty like. <laughs> but, you know, good for her. Like she yeah. figured out she figured out a, a way to make a name for herself. Um, And her name has been somewhat lost to like, you know, the annals of time. But mm-hmm. yeah, if you are interested in reading more about her, please check out the Rialto Report article on her. It goes mm-hmm. much further depth uh, into all of her like legal troubles, all of the people that she worked with, mm-hmm. all of the stuff that she did. It's a long, it's a long read, but she is like a fascinating character. Yeah. You'll have to send me that link because I want to read it. Yeah. There's also tons of pictures, which right. are also just like very funny. Be prepared Maybe. for a lot of 1970s vag. So don't open it when I'm like up at my parents' house. Don't open it when you're up at your parents' house. And also just, you know, for anybody who's like an avid <laughs> porn watcher, I guess, just be prepared for the fact that grooming habits were different then. Quite different. Yes. <laughs> Quite different. Well, that's the perfect segue. Right into story, this. Which has nothing at all to do with Fantastic. as you're packing i was like is there a way to link these stories and there like, isn't there there really there really is not there really isn't and i had a hard time with it i'm not gonna lie i had a hard time and then i finally was like because i had i actually started two other stories that will you know i'm sure i will do at a later date mm-hmm. but both of those two i was like there's no there's no there's literally no way to tie this <laughs> The Two only Scotties. connection I can think of is she's from the Midwest, and one of the characters in my story is also from the Midwest. Um, but they're very different people. So okay. All right. Well, I'm going to start with a little bit of a cold open. I just want you to imagine something. Okay. So imagine that you get up, you know, one evening, you go out, you're looking up at the sky, and you're like, wait a minute, I've never seen that star before. Uh-huh. Like way off, very faint in the distance. There's a star that you've never seen before. Well, cut to four hours later. The star is now a planet. It's twice the size of the moon. You can see the rings around it. Okay. And it's steadily getting closer. Okay. In another hour, the Earth enters the rings of this rogue planet okay (laughs) and now imagine worldwide catastrophic hailstorms but not of hail we're talking dump truck sized meteorites trillions of them bombarding the earth okay Uh, about a half hour after that oh while this is all going on the earth is being ripped apart by earthquakes um tidal waves hundreds of feet uh tsunamis hundreds of feet tall or ravaging coastlines. About a half hour after that, the atmosphere is sucked away from the Earth, swallowed by the planet. The tectonic forces basically make every single volcano explode all at once. And then a half hour after that, the Earth just simply crumbles and then disappears. Okay. This is is an episode of a show, and I forgot to write it down, Uh, but there's a show, it's on like Amazon Prime. It might be on like Paramount Plus or something, but it's basically like 10 different ways the world might end. (laughs) And this is the episode titled rogue planet Um, okay so this is what would happen if just a rogue planet that somehow we missed just entered our solar system and came barreling towards earth and you could say like okay i mean this sounds pretty unlikely and it is it is unlikely but one thing you got to keep in mind is that a rogue planet is simply a planet that has like been somehow disconnected from its planetary system or somehow formed outside of a planetary system okay 
and that there are probably there are estimates that there are two to three times as many rogue planets in the Milky Way as there are stars in the Milky Way. So we're talking trillions upon trillions of rogue planets just bopping around up there. Okay. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Even like, you know, as I'm talking about, like there's trillions upon trillions of rogue planets. Right. You got to think about the vastness of space, like a rogue planet actually hitting the earth. It'd be like trying to hit a marble across a football field with another. Yeah. Like it's, it's unlikely to happen. But like I said, there's trillions upon trillions of rogue planets bopping around the entire galaxy at any given time we've actually seen some of them with uh we have tools like the herschel space observatory the spitzer space telescope Uh a very large telescope in northern chile they've seen uh for instance there's one and i'm not gonna name it it's just a big long number um but it's 529 light years from earth it's surrounded by a protoplanetary disk it's believed to have formed outside of a solar system so this makes it what they call a sub-brown dwarf because it formed the way a star would form, but it's okay. planetary size mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another similar one. It's about 11 point times the size of Jupiter. It's 550 light years away. They think the radius is 13 to 57% the size of the sun. So again, sub-brown dwarf or extremely huge gas giant planet. But like I said, you know, there's billions or trillions of these. We are going to be launching something called the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope soon. Uh, named after not Nancy Grace from CNN. Okay, yeah, I was like... <laughs> no, there's there's a, a very uh, celebrated astronomer named Nancy Grace Roman, and it's named after her. Different person. Okay, the, good to know. But all that said, like I said, the chances of us being hit by a rogue planet, like it, it really isn't something we should worry about. Because like if it happens, like there's no way to survive. So you might as well just like lean in, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but the chances are it's not going to happen. What is the, is it, what is the Don't Look Up? Is that the movie? With the, have you watched it? I watched part of it. I couldn't get into it. It was more about an asteroid, I think. Right. And the only reason I say that is because it ends with like a similar thing happening. And like, you know, there are people who are like trying to like have a meal. I don't know. I've, if it was that certain, if it was, if I went outside and I saw, you know, like a creepy giant planet heading straight for us, I don't think I'd like wait to see what happened. No. I mean, I think you just like, okay, let's, let's get this over and done with. Yeah. Because you know whatever's going to happen is not going to be good. Right, right. I'd pop into my little space pod. I'd pop me and Donia into my (laughs) my trusty secret space pod into space. (laughs) Okay. But so that's rogue planets. But the question is, has the Earth ever encountered a rogue planet? And the answer is yes. But I'll get to that in a little while. But there are lots of theories, lots of stories about the possibility that maybe there's either a rogue planet or some sort of distant planetary body that uh, exists in our solar system that is yet to be discovered. So this week, I'm going to be talking about the Nibiru uh, cataclysm uh, hypothesis, along with the idea of Planet X and the actual genuine possibility that there might be a ninth planet in the solar system. So let's talk about Nibiru. So there was a guy. His name was Zachariah Sechen. He was born to a Jewish family in 1920 in Baku, Azerbaijan. His family moved to Tel Aviv in 1925, which was at the time the British Mandate of Palestine, or also known as Mandatory Palestine. He would later go on to earn a degree in economics from the University of London. And while he was in London, he worked as an editor and a journalist. Um, And then he started working for a shipping company. I'm not entirely 
sure what he was doing for the shipping company. He was he was still pretty young, I think, but he sort of started to grow interested in ancient cultures. And this came from the fact that because he was a native Hebrew speaker, mm. while he was living in mandatory Palestine, he started studying even older forms of Hebrew and other Semitic languages and ancient Semitic languages like Aramaic. From there, he kept going back and back and back. And he taught himself Akkadian, which is an ancient Mesopotamian culture that came right after the Sumerians which is largely considered the first actual civilization on earth. Mm -hmm. And then he taught himself how to read Sumerian cuneiform tablets. And he started, you know, he went and visited a lot of different archaeological sites. He was translating all these cuneiform tablets. And he discovered what he thought was evidence, another planet in the solar system that he called Nibiru. So based on the readings of these tablets, he he determined that Nibiru was referred to in ancient cultures, uh, particularly the Sumerians, the Akkadians, and the Babylonians. Um, so Nibiru, it comes, it's an Akkadian word. It means, sorry, it, it's an Akkadian word. It translates to crossing or point of transition. It was generally used in reference to like rivers and river crossings. He used it, he applied it to this supposed planet because the idea is, is that it's, it's a planet that circles the sun in a Y, as I was like looking for the word. I was like, like orbits, giving orbits, a stroke. <laughs> orbits the sun in like a wide elliptical orbit, which means that like most of the time we can't see it. It's so far out in the space, but every 3,600 okay. years it enters the inner solar system and we encounter it. He believed that its path was so wide that it would go out into what we call the Oort cloud, which is out past the Kuiper belt. We're talking like way out on the very far reaches of the solar system. Like I said, it would venture into the inner solar system once every 3,600 years. He said that early in the uh, development of the solar system, there was actually a planet that uh, lay between Mars and Jupiter that he called Tiamat. Anyone who knows anything about ancient Mesopotamia <laughs> knows that Tiamat is like one of the main deities of Sumerian mythology. Uh, okay. Tiamat is the goddess of creation. But he calls this planet Tiamat. He claimed that Nibiru actually collided with Tiamat and that this created the Earth. He said basically Nibiru hit Tiamat, split Tiamat in two. Half of it was like hurled into the inner part of the solar system. And that became the Earth. Okay. And then 3,600 years later, when Nibiru came back into the inner solar system, it hit the like second half that was still out by Mars. And that's what created the asteroid belt. Okay. He also claimed that Pluto had once been a moon of Saturn, okay. but that Nibiru's gravity pushed it way out into the Kuiper belt. This is why Pluto also has a very strange orbital path. It's like off of the plane of the ecliptic, which means it's like tilted compared to the other planets. Okay. It's also got a really wide elliptical orbit. Okay. Um, so he, so Sitchin referred to Nibiru as the 12th planet. And he said this was because the Sumerians also counted Pluto, the sun, and the moon as planets. Um, so this okay. would have made Nibiru the 12th. But again, this is all based on his reading of these ancient cuneiform tablets. He decided <laughs> okay. that Nibiru was essentially the home to a technologically advanced human-like race called the Anunnaki. The Anunnaki, again, this is all going back to like Babylonian mythology, Sumerian mythology. Okay. The Anunnaki are essentially a group of deities. If you go back to ancient Sumerian mythology, the earliest known writings about them come from the immediate post-Akkadian period, 
which would be around 2000 BC. They're said to be the children of the God of the heavens and the goddess of the earth, and that their primary job was to decide the fate of humanity. Hmm. In all of these earliest texts, the Anunnaki are considered the most powerful and important gods in Sumerian cosmology. Um, so it's like we're talking like the Olympians, you know, it's like their versions of like Zeus and Hera and all of that. Okay. Um, but we don't really know that much about the Anunnaki. You know, they're they're mentioned in a few literary texts. There's not really any evidence of like specific cults having existed to them. This might be because each individual god had their own specific cult and there wasn't one to like the entire pantheon. Uh, there's no representations of them as a complete group. There's also no definitive and complete list of them. Uh, but what we do know is that they're generally always depicted as being anthropomorphic, um, okay. so human-like, obviously. They were depicted as having amazing powers and depicted as being like of tremendous size. So giant. is this the fucking, do you ever see that stuff with like the giants? Like, the, I think it's like an Egyptian, like... Uh, hieroglyphics where people are like there used to be giants and it's like or maybe that's well, just like normal sized people and children yeah <laughs> I, I i think i think uh he i didn't read anything specifically about him referring to the egyptians but yeah it is that kind of thing okay um also we're gonna get to some biblical stuff about giants here in a second okay um but basically he 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 imagined that the were that the anunnaki were these humanoid gigantic extraterrestrials they're okay. also always depicted as wearing something called malam, which is a, quote, substance that covered them in terrifying splendor, whatever that means. In terrifying splendor. I think it's, like, almost related to the idea of, like, a halo. It's, like, some sort of aura around them. I've read people say, well, the malam obviously means radiation. I think the thing is you can't see radiation, so that doesn't make sense. But Okay, real fast, I just want to interject. You know how there's the people are, like... There's the the biblical description of an angel, which uh-huh. is actually like rather terrifying. Uh-huh. Somebody, I think it was on Twitter, was like, what if whoever made the descriptions of the angels was just super fucking high and they looked at a, a peacock? Yeah. No, if I'm, you look at a peacock yeah. with the with its tail. No, I've read that too. And I'm like, that actually makes as much sense as anything. One hundred percent. Because it is usually like an it's eye like surrounded by a big flames like, or something. Yeah, like yeah. a corona of right. like flames and swords and stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, that's a peacock. It's, <laughs> it's a essentially peacock. a peacock. Right. Um, well, so oh supposedly this Malam covered them in terrifying mm-hmm. splendor, and any human seeing the Malam would feel a tingling in the flesh. I think this is why people are like, obviously, it's radiation. Okay. They're also depicted as wearing horned caps, which consisted of up to seven, like, superimposed pair of ox horns. Okay. Unsurprisingly, they believe that their gods, the Anunnaki, lived in the heavens, whatever the heaven. Okay. So as Sitchin kept doing his research... He went back to the Bible, particularly the Hebrew Bible, and he read about uh, beings which are referred to as the Nephilim. So the Nephilim pop up in the book of Genesis, again, depicted as being incredibly large and strong. The word Nephilim is loosely translated as giant in many versions of the Bible. Okay. Um, so the main reference to them is in, Genu- uh, is in Genesis chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 4. So this is from the King James Bible. Okay. It says, uh, quote, and it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And they took them wives 
of all which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men. Um, mighty men which were of old men of renown. Um, so it's like not entirely clear what the Nephilim are in this. Like, are they the giants? Are they the men of renown? Are they the sons of God? Whatever. But basically this is about like there were some beings that came and mated with human women. Right? Okay. Which gave birth to like the ancient men of renown, which I think is like, you know, the Abraham and people like that. I'm just saying... There's a lot of shit talk about women, especially in old religions. Mm-hmm. But who was choosing to have sex with human women? Gods. Gods and giants. <laughs> yes. And there were female, there were female gods. And none of them ever came down and chose to F a dude. And you know why? Because men ain't shit. Just kidding. <laughs> I saw you working your way there. I was just going to let you go. <laughs> so the Nephilim pop up a couple more times in the Bible, once in uh, Numbers, once in Ezekiel. I don't need to read those passages. But again, like, you know, it's not real. It's never really spelled out in the Bible or in the ancient Hebrew texts, like what the Nephilim were. Right. A lot of people, like I said, interpret them to be giants, but other people think that they're meant to be fallen angels. Okay. And references to the Nephilim have been in, uh, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and in particular, something called the Book of Enoch. Uh, Enoch was supposedly, I think, the father of Noah. He wrote his own book. It's an ancient Hebrew apocalyptic text. It's not considered canonical to the Bible, but it goes much more deeply into the Nephilim, um, as well as it talks about demons and it it goes into the causes of the biblical flood. And uh, Enoch pretty explicitly says the Nephilim are essentially angels. Okay. So, you know, a lot of mythology, got the Anunnaki, got the Nephilim. Well, Sitchin is like, well, obviously this means there's a big giant planet that comes through the inner solar system every 3,600 years, and that these are aliens, right? This is such, it feels like a leap from where I sit, I mean, but okay, I'm I'm on, I'm on board. I mean, let's just put a pin in that, but like, I'm just going to say you're not wrong. So what Sitchin said is that the Anunnaki slash Nephilim, they evolved on Nibiru after these passes where the planet collided with Tiamat and created the Earth and blah, 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 blah. So later, in one of its passes, about 450,000 years ago, is when the Anunnaki first came to Earth. And that these, quote, gods were actually just grunt workers who were sent to Earth to mine for resources, specifically gold, specifically in Africa. And that they were like the vanguard of a colonial expedition and that there was actually a Nibiru elite that were above these, like, essentially just like workers. At some point, the Anunnaki rebelled, which then led to this Nibiru elite being like, okay, 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 we're going to give you guys a break. We're going to genetically engineer this other race, a slave race, to do all the mining work for us. We're going to call them Homo sapiens. So essentially, humans are genetically engineered workers to replace the Anunnaki, who then became the overseers of the human workers. Okay. Um, So then the Anunnaki became essentially deified by the humans and that human kings are essentially just intermediary between humans and the Anunnaki. We're essentially talking like this is classic ancient astronaut stuff. Okay. And if you guys remember my Gobekli Tepe 
story Episode. from way back when. <laughs> like, there's a lot of racially not great things in some of these ideas because essentially we're like, well, obviously these people of color and these ancient civilizations couldn't have figured out how to do anything themselves. They couldn't have built the pyramids themselves. They couldn't have done, they couldn't have figured out geometry themselves or come up with a calendar themselves. They needed this like race of aliens to essentially show them what to do. So this is like the pro. This is just the basic problem with ancient astronaut philosophy, I guess. Right. Call it that. Well, anyway, Sitchin, he spelled out all his ideas in a book called The Twelfth Planet, 1976. He went on to write seven more books and to expand on these ideas. And, and they've gone on to sell millions of copies around the world. They've been translated into 25 languages. He has, unsurprisingly, <laughs> been roundly denounced by academics. Okay. They accuse him of misreading the original texts, of cherry-picking ideas to suit his theories, of leaning into confirmation bias, all of the things. So a guy named Roger W. Westcott, he's a professor of anthropology at Drew University, he says, quote, Sitchin's linguistics seems at least as amateurish as his anthropology, biology, and astronomy. And he basically goes on to, like, break down all of the ways that Sitchin just misinterpreted everything. Okay. For instance, saying that all languages, uh, all human languages go back to ancient Sumerian. This has been proven to not be true. Mm. Uh, in fact, Sumerian has no connection to any known modern day languages. It's a language isolate. Interesting. So like. Well, that's also a fucking fascinating topic. Languages that are just like. Yeah, like Basque is another one. Like languages that have no connection to any other known languages are really. Fascinating fascinating how'd that happen <laughs> yeah yeah a couple other things that like sort of refute Sitchin's idea so like a planet with an orbit like Nibiru's it would have already destabilized the orbits of the planets in the solar system like Mars probably would have been thrown out of the solar system at some point okay if there really was a big planet that comes through every 3,000 years um also like any planet with an orbit that would bring it into the solar system every 3,600 years is actually not that far away, like in astronomical terms. Because we're talking about, like, there are things that orbit, there are comets that orbit the sun every 20,000 years. Okay. So something that's coming in every few thousand years, that's like a short period comet, you know? It's not that distant. So we would have fucking seen it. It should be visible to the naked eye. Even from a city, it'd be brighter than the faintest stars. It should really be almost as bright as Mars. Hmm. So like, there's no fucking like planet coming through every 3,600 years. Like it just okay. it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, spoiler alert. No. Okay. Um, but still, as is the case with all of these things, he has a lot of devoted followers. Uh, he's been sort of put up second to Eric von Daniken as being one of the like biggest voices in the ancient astronaut theories he inspired an entire religion called realism which is a controversial ufo religion that developed in the 1970s and his ideas have even influenced like pop culture like movies like stargate borrow a lot from you know his theories okay sitchin himself said that nibiru would return to the inner solar system somewhere around 2900 ad um so not in our lifetime but he thinks the anunnaki are probably already coming here by spaceship which hence all the ufos that we see okay and he believes that when the planet does return in 2900 ad it's going to herald the astrological age of aquarius 
which will be a quote time when humanity takes control of the earth and its own destiny as its rightful heritage with the destiny of humanity being the revelation of truth and the expansion of consciousness this is all from wikipedia wonderful Um, and clearly as an aquarian you're you're down i'm here for it yes now it should be said though like this has all been roundly debunked but it should be said like i said at the beginning has earth ever encountered a rogue planet and the answer is most likely yes in fact the nibiru tiamat hypothesis the idea that nibiru hit a planet called tiamat which formed the earth is not that different than what actually did happen uh, it's something that uh, astronomers generally call either the Theia hypothesis or the Big Splash. And this is uh, that about 4.5 billion years ago, a protoplanet, this is like early in the development of the solar system. So there was lots of just shit shooting around, like uh-huh. shit hadn't solidified into stable orbits yet. Okay. Um, and a big protoplanet just slammed into the Earth, uh, fragmenting both of the bodies, combining them, turning the Earth into a giant ball of magma. And then the leftover crap was like thrown out into essentially a ring around the earth, which then clumped together and formed the. Okay. And this is like, it's not been proven, but this is like pretty much like everyone agrees this is probably what happens. There's a lot of evidence, for instance, that Earth's spin and the moon's orbit have similar orientations. The Earth moon system has what's called a high angular momentum meaning uh, that the momentum contained in the Earth's rotation and the moon's rotation uh, and the moon revolving around the Earth, it's a lot higher than that of the other like rocky planets like Mars and Venus. Okay. Um, A giant impact will probably like explain this uh, momentum. Uh, The fact that the moon is like so much less dense than the Earth, it has a very small iron core that would make sense if it's all the stuff that was blown off of the earth and was like mm. circling it. So like, yeah, we have been hit by a rogue planet 4.5 billion years ago, <laughs> but it did likely happen. So that's Zachariah Sitchin's ideas. We can sort of set them to the side. Okay. Um, and now let's talk about uh, someone who took his ideas and went way darker with them. Okay. A woman named Nancy Leader. Uh she was born in Wisconsin, and she claims that she was contacted by great aliens when she was, like, but a wee young child. Okay. For some reason, the aliens who came from Zeta Reticuli, which is a binary star system about 40 light years from Earth, they came all the way here to talk to this little five-year-old girl in Wisconsin. Okay. And not only that, they actually implanted a communication device in her brain. And over the course of her life, have been explaining the workings of the universe to her. Okay. You know, makes sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1995, she set up a website called Zeta Talk. Uh, this was to disseminate her ideas. Uh, no one knew who the fuck she was. Um, no one was paying attention. But then in 1997, uh, the Hale-Bopp comet appeared. Okay. And she started posting in a bunch of news groups. And, and of course, there were, you know, I can't remember who it was, but some astronomer claimed he saw something following the Hale-Bopp comet. This meant a lot of people were like, oh my God, a spaceship is following Hale-Bopp, which led to about 40 people in Southern California to cut their dicks off and then kill themselves. Oh, they didn't cut their dicks off. Well, they cut their balls off. Did they? Yeah, they, they castrated themselves. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. I mean, they did that well before killing themselves. But yeah, um, this is, of course, the... Um, I'm forgetting the name of the cult now. Now I am too. The Hailbot people. Keep, it, I'll, I'll Google it while, you, while, <laughs> while we're doing this. I keep wanting to say Branch Davidians, and that's like super, totally a different cult. 
but that's not it. I'm looking it up while 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 you keep talking. So there's like a lot of like UFO culty type people were very interested in Hale Bop. And if you remember, I mean, I'm sure you remember Hale Bop was huge. Like, I mean, it was like all over the news and it was in the sky for months. Mm -hmm. It was Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate. That's right. So while everyone's like super interested in Hale-Bopp, thinks aliens are following Hale-Bopp, etc. Nancy Leader starts posting in news groups and she claims that she's not speaking for herself. She's speaking for the the Zetans um, who are talking through her communication device. And she said, quote, this is from her website. Okay. Zeta talk. It says the Hailbop comet does not exist. It is a fraud perpetrated by those who would have the teeming masses quiescent until it is too late. Hailbop is nothing more than a distant star and will draw no closer. Uh, she goes on to say the twelfth planet, a true messenger of death, will not even get the attention that the fraudulent Hailbop is getting today. That's because it's a real threat, not a diversion. So according to her, the government created Hailbop like. According to her, Hale-Bopp wasn't a comet. It was a supernova. And that's why we could see it. But the government was claiming that it was a comet because they wanted to distract from the fact that Planet X, she never called it Nibiru. She called it Planet X, was about to enter the solar system. It wasn't necessarily going to impact the Earth, but it was going to pass close enough to us that its gravity would just fuck everything up. Um, And that the government didn't want us to know about this. Um, Why not? Well, because like... It would cause panic and blah, 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 blah. So they're keeping it secret. Okay. Uh, Meanwhile, they're like, look at the comet, which is actually a supernova. Um, She says, quote, why has Hale-Bopp at this time decided to fragment and explode, growing in brightness? Spoiler alert, it did not fragment and explode. Just want to say that. Okay. This is decidedly not the pattern that comets present, but it is the pattern of exploding stars, supernovas which become for a brief time visible, then wink out. That's all true, except Hale-Bopp did not do any of those things. It did follow the pattern of the comet. It was inarguably a comet. It's probably the most well-observed comet in, like, human history. <laughs> and once it was became super clear that it was a comet, she was like, yoink, and she went in and deleted the first two sentences from her website. You can still find it in Google Archives. That's where I found it. But uh, it's not on the Zeta Talk website itself, which is still out there and operating. So what she said was that Planet X is roughly four times the size of Earth and that it's going to make its approach on May 27th, 2003. Okay. She said this would cause the Earth's rotation to completely stop for six days. It would also cause a destabilizing pole shift, which would then lead to the displacement of the Earth's crust. If you've ever seen the really terrible movie 2012, they basically took all of her ideas and were like, let's make a big blockbuster out of this. Okay. And of course, like, you know, the displacement of the Earth's crust sounds bad, right? That's going to cause all sorts of bad shit. Uh, Earthquakes, tsunamis, end of civilization, cities leveled, all of the things. This is all in the 90s that she's saying this. So Hale-Bopp is approaching the Heaven's Gate people. They kill themselves. You know, all these like weird occult things about comets were becoming. Question. Sorry. Is Hale-Bopp the, sorry, the Heaven Gates people, Heaven's Gate people, are they in any way tied to this chick? Not directly to her, but they're all tied to Hale-Bopp, the comet. Okay, like, but it's not like they were like, oh, we've been listening to what she's saying and now we're freaking out. And Their whole thing was, oh, the spaceship is following Hale-Bopp. If we kill ourselves, we're going to magically transport ourselves onto the spaceship, which is going to take us to heaven. That was their, and I'm sure I'm butchering the details, but that was in a nutshell. Okay. Her thing was like, no, it's just uh, like the comet's fake. 
but Planet X is going to come and fuck everything up. Okay, okay. She was just getting attention because everyone was looking at Hell Bob. Right. I just, I don't know. I want to make sure she wasn't like responsible for all these. No, I don't think so. I mean, she she sucks, but like she's not, I don't think she's responsible for what they did. So she was even mentioned in the New York Times. So there's a New York Times article from that time period and it's called Comets Breed Fear, Fascination and Websites. It's uh, from 1997, written by a guy named George Johnson. And he says, talking about her, he says, quote, an indefatigable internet poster who calls herself Nancy and asserts to be an emissary of alien beings called the Zeta Reticulans fills various internet discussion groups with statements that Hale-Bopp is nothing more than a diversion. According to the Zetas, Nancy writes, the comet is part of a conspiracy to deflect the world's attention from the, quote, true messenger of death. Sorry, I had a hiccup. Uh, The 12th planet, which is supposedly set to sweep by Earth and knock it for a loop. Her website, called Zeta Talk, has become one of the weirder destinations on the World Wide Web. That was in 97? Mm. Oh. Oh, just wait. Oh. (laughs) It she got does, so then, much weirder. <laughs> he does quote her where she does put a little disclaimer on her website where she says, okay. the opinions expressed are solely those of the Zeta Reticulans and are not necessarily the opinions of their emissary, Nancy, or any other party. Through it all, she's also covering her own ass. It's like, don't blame me. It's the Zeta Reticulans. I'd be like, let's get this Let's get this bitch in an MRI. Yeah. Let's get her in a fucking CAT scan and let's see what's what's going on in there. Yeah, let's, let's find the fucking communication device. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. The article, the New York Times article continues. It says, quote, the most striking thing about this recent mania is how unoriginal it is. Growing up on a planet where storms sweep in, volcanoes erupt, and the land quakes and shears into pieces, people have long been comforted by the thought that at least the heavens are orderly. Clashing with this harmony comet seemed, in centuries past, to appear at random, cutting across the sky as though they had wills of their own. Comets were believed to have portended the birth and death of Julius Caesar, the fall of Jerusalem, the invasion of Gaul by Attila the Hunt. When Halley's Comet appeared in the 9th century, Louis I, King of France, was driven to build more churches. Shelters against a well-armed and very angry god. This is nothing new. Mm-hmm. Well, again, spoiler alert for anyone who remembers 2003. Their super was not a big giant planet that went by. Their rotation did not stop for six days. I don't remember there being any like crust displacement or pole shifts. I mean, yeah, I mean, like I guess we could have missed it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so on the Zeta Talk website, let's just let's listen to uh, their explanation for what happened. They said, and this is like someone speaking for Nancy, supposedly, like it's not supposedly Nancy talking, but which is suspicious but quote as has been explained previously i love the defensiveness of this like we've already talked about this guy <laughs> Bitch, as- nobody can nobody is asking you to continue updating your blog <laughs> right. literally no one okay so if you're getting pushback on it talk to the fucking right reticular or whatever the fuck it is yeah so this is as has been explained previously all zeta talk information key to the may 15th date was part of the quote white lie all was designed to fool the establishment we avoided scrupulously any efforts during the spring of 2003 to pin us down to distance allowing humans to speculate on the distance from earth instead we also refused to address the exact speed of planet x 
preferring to talk in general terms, stating it was a rapid approach to the outer edges of the solar system and much slower when approaching the sun due to the repulsion force effect, which again, I don't think the repulsion force effect is a thing, but I didn't look it up. Nancy has pointed out several clues that May 15th was not Mm. and could not have been the date and that we have stated in Zanatok that Planet X would dive 32 degrees below the ecliptic prior to passage and at May 15th, 2003, our coordinates had only dropped to seven degrees below the ecliptic. We also stated firmly in November 2001 that no date would be given as it would allow the establishment to mistreat the populace. Because the Pentagon, I'm sure, is going to the Zeta Talk website and like studiously like waiting they've got for they've got somebody on zeta talk duty who's just <laughs> like clicking, re- probably clicking like refresh. some four-star general is like watching zeta talk so she also makes it clear when she's talking about this may 15 2003 it says quote the passage with rotation stoppage and pull shift has been described as occurring shortly after may 15 2003 so now they're getting real like splitting hairs well we were saying shortly after that could mean anything right right And then they say the Zetas, of course, it's the Zetas. The Zetas declined to be more specific, citing in November 2001 that the elite and those in power would use such knowledge to their advantage and to the disadvantage of the common man. So they go on and on. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but they go on and on and on about all the reasons why they lied, because we're protecting the common man. Okay. From the government who would misuse the information that we would have provided. Okay. So Nancy Leader, who I believe is still alive, she has never specified a new date for Planet X's return. A lot of people then latched onto it and were like, well, obviously it's going to be December 21st, 2012, because then they started tying it to the Mayan calendar. Right. Of course, December 21st, 2012 came by. Again, do not remember any major cataclysms. You know, I mean, Obama got reelected. That seemed fine. She did try to say on... I think in 2014, she tried to claim that actually President Obama had tried to hint at Planet X's current location. This was during the 2012 election. He was dropping little hints and Easter eggs. So from the Zeta Talk website, it says, quote, as detailed in issue 314, I'm assuming that's their newsletter, the announcement was attempted on the last weekend of the month, September 30th, via the emergency alert system, which was then discovered sabotaged at so many points that it again ran into Sunday afternoon when the markets were due to open. Open for the week. And then as detailed in issue 315, the announcement was again pressed forward, this time for the weekend of October 6th, avoiding the emergency alert system, but instead using the Oval Office address route. This route likewise met sabotage and legal challenges until the attempts found themselves at Sunday afternoon with the markets about to open. By the following weekend of October 13th, the blocks to an Oval Office address had been effectively rooted out, but the Romney bounce from the first presidential debate now had the Obama campaign frantic. Could they risk losing the election with scant time to recover from any adverse reaction? As a last check, focus groups were assembled and tested, settling the issue. No announcement would be made until after the election. So you look like that whole thing just gave you a massive (laughs) migraine. Which is, again, that's appropriate. Yeah. Also, I just want to point out that there were no emergency alert like broadcasts. There was no Oval Office. Nothing happened. And also, again, they're saying there was not going to be any announcement until after the election. Hey, guess what? That election was well over a decade ago, and we've still had no announcement. 
Now, in 2017, another conspiracy theorist and supposed, quote, Christian numerologist, a guy named mm. David Mead, he tried to take Nancy Leader's ideas and Zachariah Sitchin's ideas and link them back to the Bible. He said he had read certain Bible passages that contained secret numerological codes, which reveal the exact date of the Nibiru slash Planet X's arrival. He also somehow based all this on the geography of the Giza pyramids. I tried to read some of his shit and it was so, I was just like, no, I can't, like, there's only so much of this I can deal with. Right. But he claimed that Planet X would arrive in either September or October of 2017. He somehow linked it to the Book of Revelation and the Woman of the Apocalypse, which is probably Mary who had a, like, baby that gives birth, or... She had a baby boy that's threatened by a dragon that's Satan, and then a whole bunch of shit happens. And again, I was like, how does this tell me a giant planet is coming? I don't know. So I just skipped past it. Okay. Other conspiracy theories connected to Nancy Leader and Zachariah Sachin. So the IRAS Infrared Observatory, okay. they freaked out a whole bunch of people when they cited a, quote, unknown object that they first described as, quote, possibly as large as the giant planet Jupiter and possibly so close to Earth that it could be part of this solar system. Leader herself was like, see, see, I told you, I told you. And then they came out later and said, oh, no, sorry, our bad. That's actually a like way distant galaxy. We just like miscalculated some shit. Uh-huh. Well, there was that. There's also the United States government built the South Pole telescope. And people have claimed that it was actually specifically built to track Nibiru's trajectory and that they even have pictures of it. The problem with this is there's no anything that could approach Earth that could only be seen from the South Pole. Also, the South Pole telescope is a radio telescope. It doesn't take pictures. So there's that. People have tied it to the idea of Herculobus, which was in 1999, a new age author named VM Rabalu. He wrote that Bernard Star is actually, uh, and Bernard Star is just, it's a star. It's, it's like a fairly close by star, but it's actually a planet that was known to the ancients as Herculobus and which purportedly swung dangerously close to the earth and destroyed Atlantis. And of course he said, and it's going to come back around and come close to earth again. And so again, Nancy Leader was like, see, 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 I told you. But Barnard Star is actually, it's six light years from Earth. It is approaching the Earth. It is getting closer to the Earth over time. It will reach its nearest point to the Earth in about 11,700 AD. And at that point, it will be 3.8 light years away. And that's as close as it's going to get. Okay. <laughs> it's only a little, that's only a little bit closer than Proxima Centauri is now, which is I think 4.2 light years away. That's the okay. closest star to Earth. Okay. So again, like, don't worry about Herculabus. There's also people were looking at Google Sky and they noticed there's like a missing patch from the sky missing near Orion. And they're like, see, that's Nibiru and they're redacting it. Big problem with that theory is like anyone can look into the sky. Anyone can look at fucking Orion and there's like nothing there. Right. <laughs> like there's no giant planet getting closer. And then, you know, Google Sky was like, guys, it's like, it was a software error. It's fine. Someone later posted a picture of Nibiru on YouTube. Turned out it was a Hubble Space Telescope image of the expanding, quote, light echo around the star V838 Mon, which is more than 19,000 light years from Earth. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, if, if you're inclined to believe any of this, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, this is just making me mad. It's, yeah. it's not at all scary. I'm just mad. No, I knew this one wasn't going to scare you because it is. It's all just... It, 
And like we were talking about, you know, last week on the AMA, the problem with all this stuff is like, how long do you think it's going to take for someone who's talking about the ancient Anunnaki and this elite, you know, that enslaved the humans? How long do you think it'll be before someone says, oh yeah, that's the Jews? Like it always is going to go in that QAnon direction eventually. Right. Like not saying, I don't know that Nancy Leader has ever said that, but someone is like, someone's going to take it to the next step. Right. Okay. Other possible connections. So there is a theory of something called nemesis the people the nibiru slash planet x believers have like confused it with okay so nemesis is a hypothetical star it was first proposed by a physicist named richard Mueller. in 1984 he postulated that the mass extinctions if you look at the mass extinctions that have happened on earth they happen in these weirdly kind of regular time periods and so he says maybe they're not random but maybe every about 26 to 34 million years, a giant star, you know, a companion to the sun that we have not seen, passes close enough to the solar system that its gravity disturbs the Oort cloud, which is the cloud of just crap surrounding the solar system. Right. And shoots comets into the inner solar system. And so the planets are then bombarded by comets. And that's why what has caused all these mass extinctions over time. And that's like, that's actually not an implausible theory. Like, I don't, no one's proven it one way or the other. Um, I think a lot of astronomers are like, yeah, but we would have seen it. Like, we would have seen the star at some point. It's kind of not that credible that we haven't found some companion mm. star, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we can see literal galaxies, like, on the other side of the universe. You'd think we would have seen this thing. Yeah. But it's still, like, theoretically possible. But it's also, it's a totally different theory than Nibiru. So all the people who are trying to, like, combine the two theories, are they're basically conflating things that aren't related. People have also pointed to the discoveries of Sedna and Eris, and have conflated those with Nibiru. So Sedna and Eris, they're both trans-Neptunian objects. They were discovered in 2003 and 2005 by an astronomer named Mike Brown. Eris was first described in the press as the 10th planet because it's actually more massive than Pluto. I think it's like smaller radius or smaller diameter, but like heavier, denser. So it's more massive. It has a very well-determined orbit that never brings it any closer to Earth than 3.4 billion miles um sedna is a little smaller than pluto it never comes any closer than 7.1 billion miles i think they're both out the kuiper belt the discovery of both eris and sedna is what essentially led to pluto losing its planet status because they were like (laughs) i like your little sad face there (laughs) um yeah yeah like pluto got fired and it's now a dwarf planet it's not a planet and it's because they they were like, okay, we're finding like a bunch of these things out there now. Yeah. Like, there's nothing really all that special about Pluto. He's just a little guy. Just a little guy, you know, doing his thing. So all of that to say like, it's all obvious bullshit, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that leaves an open question though. Like there's no known rogue planet that's going to come into the inner solar system and mm-hmm. fucking dump a bunch of aliens here to enslave us and or displace like the crest of the earth. Like that's not going to happen. But could there be an actual ninth planet in the solar system? This is an open question. So ever since Neptune was discovered in 1846, people have been speculating that there's another planet out there. This gets into like lots of science that I'm not going to try to explain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I tried to like really summarize it 
as like concisely as possible but this is all about like they're looking at different objects you know they're looking at the moons of saturn they're looking at pluto they're looking at you know the orbits of saturn and or of neptune and uranus and they're seeing these like anomalies this goes all the way back to at least like the turn of the century the turn of the 20th century where people are like okay that orbit doesn't quite make sense and so by doing mathematical modeling they can be like what would explain it well maybe there's something out there that we can't see that's perturbing these orbits Mm -hmm. so the first theory was because there was an anomaly in the predicted orbit of neptune and uranus that people couldn't understand so an astronomer named percival lowell he was like i think there might be another planet out there and he was even able to like use the math to predict where it would be like what its orbit would be and roughly how big it was and in 1906 he started looking for it he by the way also called it planet x uh the way nancy leader did he never found anything but one of his i think former assistants maybe a guy named clyde tomba he continued his search after lowell died and he ended up discovering pluto in 1930 okay and they were like oh cool yeah we found uh we found planet x but then they did calculations they're like no that's way too small it couldn't be affecting the orbits this was still like an unresolved question until the voyager 2 fly if you you guys remember my voyager golden record story the voyager 2 flyby in 1989 they were able to look more closely at the planets and they realized that the orbital anomalies of uranus and neptune were just the result of some incorrect calculations of neptune's mass and once they were able to get a correct calculation they're like oh it totally makes sense now okay so percival lowell's theories were kind of put to the side okay But then in the early 2000s, like I said, they discovered Sedna and Eris, and they were like, okay, their orbits don't make sense, because they're so far out there, there's what's called a detached orbit, which means they're swinging around the sun so far away that they can't be influenced by the orbit of Uranus or Neptune. So what is like keeping them from just like spinning out into space, into interstellar space? And they're like, there could be another planet out there. So again, people started theorizing that there's another massive planetary body. Now they're saying it's out, you know, possibly at the far, like the inner edge of the Oort cloud. So about 1,500 astronomical units away. An astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the sun. So 1,500 of those distances. (laughs) Okay. Very far out there. A guy named Rodney Gomez in 2012 at a conference, he sort of outlined his theory about this potential planet. He said it'd be about 1,500 astronomical units away. It would be, it would have a 40 degree inclined orbit. So off of the ecliptic plane. And I think he said it would be about a Neptune sized planet. And then in 2016, a pair of Caltech astronomers, a guy named Constantine Batigen, and again, this Mike Brown, who's the guy who discovered Eris and Sedna, they looked at six what are called extreme trans-Neptunian objects, or ETNOs, which would be like Eris, Sedna, like planetesimals up there, that had weird orbits. And they, again, did some mathematical modeling, and they were like, okay, we think we've found the path of this supposed planet nine. According to their calculations, it would be 400 to 600 astronomical units from Earth. It would be quite a bit smaller than what Gomez said. They said it, they think it would be about 5 to 10 times the mass of the Earth. They think it would take a, between 10 and 20,000 years to complete an orbit of the Sun. By contrast, Pluto takes about 248 years. They also predicted that it would be about 15 to 25% off of the ecliptic, so 
you know, with a tilted orbit. And, and Brown said that he thinks its gravity would be enough that it would dominate, its gravity would dominate its region of space. What basically the way they determine what is a planet versus a dwarf planet is if its gravity essentially does what's called clears the neighborhood, which means like pushes everything else away or pulls everything else in. Mm. The thing about Pluto is that it's not big enough to like clear out everything else that's around it. That's why it doesn't qualify. Whatever this planet if it exists, it would clear the neighborhood. So from a website called interestingengineering.com, they did say that like a physicist named Kevin Napier at the University of Michigan, he did some recalculations and he was able to kind of show how these like orbital anomalies could occur without there being a planet. So it's sort of like contradicts the theory that there's a ninth planet so it's like you know no one really knows for sure basically a lot of people have disagreed with him and said like well we just need more data we just don't have enough data so to close it out this is from uh, jim green he's the director of nasa's planetary science division he says quote the possibility of a new planet is certainly an exciting one for me as a planetary scientist and for all of us this is not however the detection or discovery of a new planet it's too early to say with certainty that there's a so-called planet x What we're seeing is an early prediction based on modeling from limited observation. It's the start of a process that could lead to an exciting result. That's the story of the Nibiru, the basically bullshit Nibiru cataclysm hypothesis and the possibly not bullshit theory that there is actually a planet X in our solar system. Fascinating. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, this was a weird episode, everybody. (laughs) Weird episode. Um, Thanks so much, for, as always, for listening. Stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.